Well, if you have your Bibles, you can open up with me to John chapter 7. And as you are turning there, there are, there are many small and, and trivial things in life that you can get wrong without there being really any significant consequences, right? Uh, some of those things might be uh, which restaurant has the best hamburger, Right? Uh, or, or who was the, the greatest quarterback of all time? You may, you may have opinions on that, uh, and you can be wrong about those things, and it really has no significance about, uh, from, to, for your day-to-day life other than maybe where you'll go to eat this afternoon for lunch uh, or who you'll be uh, cheering for uh, come uh, the, the Super Bowl party. But uh, those things have very little significance in the grand scheme of life. You can get those things wrong, and it really doesn't matter. There, there are other things that if you misjudge them, uh, they have some impact on your life. Right? If you misjudge or misevaluate uh, the condition of a used car as you are looking to, to purchase it, right? that, that may cost you a lot more money than you initially expected to spend. Right, or if you forget uh, to get the, the right or neglect to get the right homeowner's insurance policy. Oh, I didn't sign up for that water damage uh, or that flood insurance. Uh, th- those are things that can have a significant impact upon your life. And there are still other decisions in life that will shape you uh, in such a profound way that you should spend a great deal of time praying and thinking about those decisions. Right? If you should go to college or what college you should attend, what you should study in order to pursue a career, what job should you take, where should you live, should you move out of California? Uh, Another really big important question, who who should you marry, right? If if you are single, that that weighs uh, heavy upon the the hearts and minds of, of many. Right, those are really big decisions, and they require a lot of thought and energy. And if you, if you make a, a poor decision on that, it has a uh, far-reaching impact upon your life. But then there is, there is one question, one matter in life that, was, that even towers above all of those. Uh, one matter in life that is the greatest in significance Because it has the greatest consequences. Uh, And what you determine regarding this matter uh, is even uh, more important because it's also a matter you cannot avoid. You can't run from it. They they say uh, there's only two things in life that are uh, 100% sure, whether death and taxes. I've I've quoted my my high school math teacher before. He says, no, you don't have to pay taxes. You can go to jail. Uh, So the only thing that you have to do in life is die. Uh, And so, but but after death, then what what comes? What happens? And that's where uh, this most important matter in all of life concerns who Jesus is and how we will respond to him. Uh, Because as Hebrews 9, 27 says, shows us and t- teaches us that, uh, that after death, then comes the judgment. And then we must stand before a holy God and give an account for our lives. And so how we answer that question of who is Jesus and how will I respond to him 
that will have a profound impact upon our life here and now, but also uh, for all of eternity. And we are confronted by Christ with this question, and we all must answer. That's what we see over and over again in the Gospel of John. And actually what we've been looking at in John chapter 7 uh, is that was the, the topic of debate at the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem, also known as the, the Feast of Booths, uh, that in John chapter 7, verses 11 to 13, if you, if you look with me there, the, the Jews at the feast were, were looking for Christ. He hadn't come up there yet. And they were saying, where is he? And there was much muttering or kind of a quiet, subdued debate about him among the people. And while some said, he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. And yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. And then as we saw last week or two weeks ago, uh, Jesus came to the feast in, in the middle of the feast rather than at the beginning of the feast. What we saw at, uh, at the very beginning of John chapter 7 is uh, in, the, in the time frame leading up to the, the Feast of Booths in Jerusalem, uh, Jesus' brothers had come alongside him and said, hey, you should go up to the feast and really use it as a publicity tour. Hey, Jesus, you lost a lot of disciples uh, with your last big preaching event at the end of John chapter 6. How are you going to get those disciples back? You need publicity, and this is the time to go and make yourself known. If you want to be a public figure, you've got to go do public things. And Jesus says, no, this is not my time. And as we saw, Jesus was operating uh, upon a divine timetable completely submitting himself to the plan and the will of God the Father, even down to when he should go up to this feast. What day? What time? And then when it was the proper time for him to go up to the feast, Jesus went up in the middle rather than at the beginning, and then he goes into the temple complex, uh, and he began to teach there in the temple complex, and then a crowd gathers together, to hear him, and that crowd is going to be mixed with ordinary uh, people uh, and the Jewish leaders. Uh, and so we're going to, to look at verses 19 through 24 this morning, but to kind of get a running start or kind of parachute uh, down into this text, I want to start reading uh, in verse 14 so we understand what we're going to be looking at today. So, beginning in John chapter 7, verse 14, it says, About the middle of the feast. Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. And the Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? And so Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. And the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law, and yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? And the crowd answered, You have a demon. Who's trying to kill you? And Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. And if on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, 
Are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So as we look at this passage this morning, what we're going to see is this interaction between Jesus and the crowd. It's kind of back and forth. Uh, And and it's going to to culminate in Jesus issuing two commands uh, in verse 24. He says, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Uh, and so what is it that leads to those two commands is that there was a, a series of misjudgments that were being made by the crowd. Now, that they were making some assumptions and misinterpreting uh, who Jesus was, what he was doing, what was taking place in the hearts of the leaders. Uh, and so what we're going to, to see this morning uh, is that as Jesus teaches and rebukes the crowd, there are, are lessons for us to learn regarding what we are prone to misjudge, what we are prone to misunderstand, uh, and especially uh, how we are prone to misunderstand Christ. Uh, and uh, there's going to be three uh, misjudgments that we are, are prone to make as human beings. And the first of those uh, is going to be seen in verse 19. You could say that we are prone to misjudge our own sinfulness. And Moses is going, or Jesus is going to begin this verse uh, by speaking about Moses. He's going to say, Moses gave you the law, right? Well, well, this is picking up where Jesus was speaking uh, in verses 17 and 18. Uh, And in those verses, Jesus was presenting uh, his case uh, that, that faith has to be a prerequisite for understanding. And, and again, as we as we talked about two weeks ago, that the people were coming and they were questioning Jesus of like, well, who taught you? Like what school, what rabbinical school did you attend and what authority do you have? Uh, and basically what qualifies you as a teacher, Jesus? Uh, and Jesus turned the things around on them. And rather than really getting into that question, well, he just says, well, my teaching is not of a rabbinic school. My, my teaching comes directly from God. Uh, and they're questioning his credentials as a teacher. But he turns things around and says, are you really ready to listen to me? He, he questions their credentials as hearers. Uh, and what he says in verse 17 was the idea that, that if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. And that, that prerequisite to understanding Christ and who he is and what he's come to do is a willingness to submit ourselves to God. And that's what faith does. That's how faith acts. And if we are unwilling to submit ourselves to God, Jesus will never make any sense to us. And unwillingness to do God's will means that we are unable to understand Christ. And so to prove this point, uh, and again, just the, the, to show that the people that he is speaking to, that they really have no desire to submit themselves to God's will, right? if that's what it, what it takes to, uh, to understand Christ, Jesus is now going to be saying, you don't understand me because you're not willing to submit to, to God. They underestimate their own sinfulness. And to prove this, Jesus points to the law of Moses, right? Verse 19, has not Moses given you the law? And yet, what does Jesus say about everyone there? Yet none of you keeps the law. Jesus is saying, you have all of the information. You have what you need to know. 
uh, and yet you, you have not followed it. Uh, and Jesus, in pointing to the, the law of Moses, he's referring to uh, the first five books in the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And collectively, uh, these are referred to later on in Scripture as either just the law or, or specifically as the law of Moses or the book of Moses. Uh, and uh, in the law, we have the, a revelation of God's will, of who he is uh, and what we are called to be and to do. Uh, and the law informs us of God's will for our lives. Uh, and yet, Jesus says, you, you know what God is calling you to, and yet none of you do it. Uh, and that same verdict is the verdict of, of God himself echoed through the Old Testament prophets uh, and then also through the New Testament apostles who repeatedly say Israel uh, stumbled and, and fell short based upon the instruction that they were given. Indeed, every single human being who has ever lived uh, has rebelled against God. None of us obey God. None of us uh, do what he is calling us to do. We all go our own way. And at, at the end of that verse, Jesus also provides a very specific way in which the Jewish leaders were at that very moment breaking the law that they knew so well. The end of verse 19, he says, why do you seek to kill me? Uh, and the, so the Jewish leaders were, were there plotting and conspiring to kill Jesus. We saw that back in John chapter 5, verse 18, uh, on a, uh, an issue that arose on the Sabbath. And we'll, we'll re- look back at John chapter 5 a little bit more uh, in a bit. But also, if you just look at chapter 7, verse 1, uh, that we, we saw at the very beginning of this whole narrative, uh, that Jesus wasn't going into Galilee because the Jewish leaders were seeking to kill him. Uh, and so uh, the leaders are trying to kill him. Uh, and so Jesus is saying, why do you try to kill me? You, you yourselves, religious leaders, are breaking the law and conspiring to kill me. And he's bringing that to their attention. Uh, that again, of these, these religious leaders, these teachers of God's word, are minimizing their own sin and misjudging their own sinfulness. And again, this is... This is what we are all prone to do. This is not just a religious leader of uh, Judaism issue. This is a human issue. This is what we are all prone to. Uh, there's a, a wonderful example of this uh, in uh, the Old Testament in, in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 11. Uh, King David uh, commits adultery with Bathsheba and then he conspires to have uh, her husband Uriah uh, killed in battle. Right? And, and then uh, he, he has uh, Uriah killed, and then he just kind of goes back to life as usual. And he seeks to, to minimize his sin, to, to cover it up. Uh, and so God sends a prophet, Nathan, in Second Samuel 12, uh, to go and, and confront David. And I love what Nathan does, picking up in Second Samuel chapter 12, verse 1. He, and the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said... There are two men in a certain city, and the one rich and the other poor. And the rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. And it used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. And now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So, so the prophet Nathan comes and speaks this parable to David. And 
Listen to David's response. David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. He said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, who has done this, uh, or the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. David was just absolutely outraged by this tale. And I I can imagine Nathan the prophet looking at him and, and maybe even pointing a finger and saying, you are the man. See, David had minimized and misjudged his own sin. It wasn't a big deal. But he's outraged at the sin of others. And Nathan just says, look, this is you. And what we see is David is just absolutely crushed. He's pierced to the heart by uh, his sinfulness once he sees it. God had to send a prophet to confront King David in his sinfulness. And, And God sent Jesus Christ to confront Israel and their false religion. And God has given us his word to continue to confront us each and every day. To show us who he is. To show us our own sinfulness. To show us of our desperate need for a savior. Indeed, that is, that is the, the value of the Old Testament law. What, what Jesus is pointing to of all of those books of Moses, right? Now, all of those books of Moses that if you started a Bible reading plan this year, you're like in the middle of Genesis. And then you probably will abandon it when you start Leviticus uh, in the middle of February. Uh, but... Uh, those books, what, what Jesus is saying is that is the revelation of God's will and looking to those and understanding them will help us to see who God is, who we are, and our need for a Savior. That's what we see over and over again in Scripture and in the Old Testament. Uh, and indeed, as uh, this month in our, uh, in our growth groups, as we are studying uh, the book of James, I've already been greatly convicted. Uh, I've already been pierced. Uh, And I I hope and pray that you all have been as well, because we underestimate our sinfulness. Uh, We we tend to to make things not a big deal. And then we we read in God's word and we see, oh, this is where sin begins. Not outside of me, begins inside of me. Uh, My my quarrels, my my, uh, arguments, where do they begin? With me. Uh, With out-of-control desires. Uh, with demands in my heart that are unmet. That's what we begin to see, and that is the value of God's Word. And because we are prone to misjudging our own sin and sinfulness, we need God's Word to shine as a light into our lives, to help us to see what is good and right and true. That is what we see, this first tendency. We are prone to, to misjudge our own sinfulness. And then... There's a second misjudgment that we are prone to, that we see here, and it's in verse 20. We can say that we are prone to misjudge our own circumstances. So so Jesus, who is speaking rightly and accurately, uh, is pointing out the religious leaders of that they are trying to kill him, and uh, that they are 
operating contrary to the law in doing so. Uh, and wh- what's really funny is there's a great sense of irony here because, uh, remember, at the Feast of Booths, there would be people from all over uh, the greater part of Israel who, who, who gathered together uh, in Jerusalem for this feast. So there's a whole bunch of Galileans and people from the, kind of the, the fringe provinces who are coming, and they don't know what's going on in Jerusalem. They don't know about this animosity that has been taking place and growing between the religious leaders and Jesus. And so the crowd is like, what are you talking about? Like, and in saying that you, you have a demon, uh, the idea is that, hey, you're crazy. You're insane. You're delusional right now, Jesus. And, and this is a, a claim that is going to be made a couple other times in, uh, in John as well. John chapter 8, verse 48. Now the Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? And then John chapter 10, uh, verses 19 through 21, there was again a division among the Jews because of these words. And many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? And others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? And they're referring to the the miracle that Jesus performed in John chapter 9 of of healing uh, a man who was born blind. They look, demons don't do that. So there's this constant debate about who is Jesus. Uh, And again, this Galilean crowd doesn't realize what is actually taking place. Uh, They don't understand. And it's, it's very easy... Uh, for us to kind of scoff at them, uh, but we, we have the, the benefit uh, of hindsight, right? We know many things that that crowd doesn't know. Well, we know uh, that just about six months from what we're reading right now, Jesus is going to be uh, arrested by the Jewish leaders, and they are going to be successful in their conspiracy to kill him. Uh, and so what we see here is, is the crowd is, is misunderstanding, misjudging, misinterpreting the circumstances. They don't really know what is going on because they have limited information. But Christ knows all that is taking place and what is uh, really happening. There are, there are many uh, conspiracies that are, that are flying around the Internet these days, right? Uh, it doesn't take very long to try and uh, find them. And part of that is because uh, in this Internet age, uh, every one of us can be a, a publisher, uh, and there, there's no one to vet your story. So each and every one of you could start your own conspiracy. Uh, I'm sure there's a website for that somewhere. Uh, and you could, uh, you know, proclaim uh, something or other, fabricate some story. Uh, and no, you probably come across some of the conspiracies, uh, and some of them it's very easy to dismiss. Like, oh, that's just really silly, and there's very clear evidence uh, against it, contrary to it. Uh, and, and yet people still believe in those conspiracies. What, what's, what's really uh, ironic and uh, kind of funny is that back in, in 2017, there was an, an interview with a professional basketball player. Uh, his name was Kyrie Irving. Uh, and in this interview, there's two other athletes interviewing him, uh, and somehow uh, the, the topic of a, a flat earth comes up. And he's like, oh, no, the earth really is flat. Uh, and and he, he says it multiple times and is adamant about the, this really big and grand conspiracy about uh, the earth uh, being flat. Uh, and it's just a false narrative that we are being told that the earth is round. Uh, and so he, he was so adamant about this, despite even probably as a professional basketball player uh, flying in airplanes regularly. And when you're in an airplane, what can you clearly see as you're up high? 
the curvature of the earth, right? So even contrary to all of this evidence, he still is holding fast uh, to this idea that the earth uh, is flat. And again, it's easy for us to misjudge our circumstances, even in the face of abundant evidence. And it's easy for us to, to make assumptions. And again, ironic, no one believed Jesus at the time. But the conspiracy that he was talking about ended up being true. Right? He says, no, these, there's people here who are trying to kill me. And the crowd looks at him as if he's insane. He says, no, you don't understand the bigger picture. We are prone to misunderstand our circumstances. But then in verses 21 to 23, it's a third misjudgment that we are prone to. And I will draw your attention uh, to it, that we are prone to misjudge the Word of God. I'd like to read these uh, verses again, because there's, there's a lot here. In verse 21, Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. And if on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, you are angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a a man's whole body well. And so what Jesus is is referring to is he's answering to this accusation that he's demon-possessed. He doesn't immediately uh, address that, but he says, well, well let, me, let me tell you. They say, you're demon-possessed. Who's trying to kill you? And Jesus doesn't immediately come out and say, well, it's that guy right there and that guy right there. And that. He doesn't immediately say that, but what he starts to allude to is he points back to an incident that had taken place in Jerusalem uh, some months before, back in John chapter 5. If you, if you turn back there, uh, what you see, just in the... The title, there is the the healing at the pool on the Sabbath. That at the pool of Bethesda, there was a a man who was an invalid uh, and who had been there for 38 years. Right? He was a a known commodity. When someone sits in one place for 38 years, people know about them. Right? Uh, And so he, he had been there 38 years, and then Jesus comes and heals him on the Sabbath. Uh, And and the, the issue became what Jesus did rather than that this man was healed. Uh, and so the man was healed, and then he, he takes up his mat, he takes up his bed, uh, and he's walking around, and the Jewish leaders see him, and they're like, whoa, whoa, what are you doing? You can't do this. And he's like, well, the guy who healed me said to do this. Uh, and they're like, well, who healed you? And he didn't even know. He didn't stick around long enough to even find out who healed him. Right? That's a little bit of information that we would hopefully want to know. Uh, and once he, he did find out who Jesus was, uh, he went and told the religious leaders. And that's what stirred up this whole controversy. And it was that uh, event and what followed, uh, which leads into the rest of John chapter 5, this big debate between Jesus and the, the Jewish leaders. And that was when the Jewish leaders began to seek to kill him. So in pointing back uh, to that incident, Jesus is going to be really identifying who is trying to kill him. Uh, and he's also going to be explaining uh, why uh, they are hypocrites uh, for accusing him of breaking uh, the Sabbath. Uh, and, and really what he's going to say is all of this stems from a, a misjudgment and a misapplication of 
God's word, that the Jewish leaders were teaching falsely. And what he's going to to do to to make his case is he's going to state a principle uh, and then he's going to apply the principle uh, in a smaller situation uh, and then to a bigger situation. Sorry, an argument from from lesser to greater. Uh, And the the principle that he's going to, to be teaching is this, that according to the law of Moses, acts of mercy were permissible on the Sabbath. That, that, and, and even if you, if you look at the language, not only were they permissible, but they were obligatory. Uh, that, that you had to do acts of mercy on the Sabbath in order to keep the Sabbath. And celebrating and, and worshiping God, we have to do good uh, for others. Uh, but as he presents his argument, uh, he, again, arguing from lesser to greater, he's going to start with uh, pointing out that circumcision uh, is permissible on the Sabbath. Uh, and so if a, if, a, if a Jewish boy is born on a Saturday, uh, he's supposed to be circumcised on the eighth day. Well, that also falls on a Saturday. Uh, but then that presents you with a, a difficult situation, right? You have a, a conflicting uh, command with another command. Uh, you have the command to circumcise a son on the eighth day, but you also have a command to keep the Sabbath. What's also interesting is that these two commands are related directly to two covenants. Okay? Uh, circumcision is connected. It is the sign, the way of remembering the Abrahamic covenant uh, of God's promises with Abraham. Right? And the, the Sabbath uh, was the sign of the God's covenant with Israel through Moses, what's known as the Mosaic covenant. So you have these two commands, these two signs of different covenants. Uh, and what do you do when they're conflicting? Right? Do I do no work and keep the Sabbath or do I circumcise my son? And so Jesus says, this has been explained to you all. Because Abraham's uh, uh, covenant and the sign of circumcision preceded Moses uh, and the law. And so that supersedes what Moses has uh, commanded. And so even Moses, when he was giving the law, said you can circumcise uh, on a Sabbath day without breaking the Sabbath. And so ultimately, yeah, the Abrahamic covenant takes precedence uh, rather than just what God has done through Moses. Uh, And so according to Jewish thought, uh, it was also believed that uh, that circumcision was a a healing or a perfecting of a portion of a man's body. Uh, And so Jesus is going to say this. So if if circumcision heals part of a man uh, and is beneficial in that way uh, and you allow it on the Sabbath and it's not broken, Uh, Why are you objecting to me healing a man in his entirety? How can I be breaking uh, the Sabbath when I'm I'm doing exactly what takes place in circumcision, even to a greater degree? That that is the point that that Jesus is making, and and he's doing this in a way that presents the hypocrisy and the the falsehood uh, of the Jewish leaders. Uh, And, again, we, we we are prone... To misunderstand, uh, and then if we, if we misunderstand, we, we misapply God's Word. Uh, and some of you may think that, uh, that, that, that keeping the, the Sabbath is a, is a really ancient thing. Uh, it doesn't really happen uh, too much today, and no one really takes that seriously. Well, uh, and the, well, let me backtrack a little bit. The, the Pharisees had taken what God had intended with the Sabbath. Uh, to be a, a day of rest, uh, of worship and blessing. And they had made it into something burdensome. Uh, and, and that continues into today. 
Uh, and so on the Sabbath, they had kind of broken down all of these different laws of what they were allowed to do and not do. Uh, and it was very clear, like, what is work? Uh, and they, they named that plowing uh, was not or was work and it was not permissible. Right? You can't go plow a field on the Sabbath. But uh, then other things that are similar to plowing, like digging, were also forbidden. And then even things like uh, not dragging a chair along the dirt uh, became outlawed because what might the legs of the chair do? Might make a line in the sand and that's digging. So that became uh, illegal on the Sabbath. And if you drag a chair uh, across uh, the ground, the dirt on a Saturday or from uh, Friday at sundown to Saturday at sundown, you were guilty of breaking the Sabbath. Those are the types of laws that were... uh, uh, Instructed and taught during Jesus' time and, and actually still continue today. And, and you may be like, no, it doesn't happen. Well, uh, you would probably be shocked to find out that in the, the skyline of Manhattan, uh, there are 18 miles of wires going from building to building. Uh, and, and what these wires are uh, is they are what's known in Hebrew as an Eruv. Uh, and an Eruv... Uh, causes it's like a a boundary marker that you can set this up and you can treat uh, an outdoor setting as if it's indoors like it's part of your home Uh, because on the sabbath uh, orthodox jews are not allowed to carry anything because that's work so you literally can't carry books groceries even your own children Uh, that is work so what the 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 jewish uh, community in manhattan has said is we are going to to put together uh, this air roof system so that we can in essence do work on the sabbath that we can treat all of manhattan as if it's our own uh, home and then the rules don't apply to us Think about that. And this is not uh, an inexpensive endeavor. Okay? Uh, the, the Jewish synagogues uh, in uh, New York contribute $100,000 a year to maintain these wires. Think about that. Now, and, and New York uh, is not the only city in America that has this type of wire system to kind of uh, create a loophole in the, the Sabbath law. Uh, And when it comes to maintaining these wires, they are inspected by a rabbi every single Thursday morning to determine uh, if they are still functioning as they should, if they're all still connected so that no one breaks uh, the law on the the Sabbath. Think about that. Uh, This is the, uh, the seriousness of it. But again, this is a misjudgment, a misunderstanding of God's word. And if we misunderstand God's word, we are also going to, to misapply it. And there are many people in the world and in the church who will twist God's word for their own gain, as the Pharisees did. And there are, there are others who are also just, just ignorant uh, and speak uh, error without even realizing it. But, but both are dangerous. If you, if you are wrong about what God has taught, whether you're doing it intentionally or unintentionally, you can still lead people astray. And if you act upon a misunderstanding of God's law, there's a lot of carnage that can be uh, be created in your heart and in your life and in the lives of others. So this this tendency that we we are prone to misunderstand God's word. This is a a matter where we all need to have a basic level of understanding of what God has said in his word. And how, how do we read the Bible? How am I to understand it? 
Uh, again, that's, that's one of our, our passions here at Ambassador. All right, we want each and every one of you to be able to read the Bible for yourself. Uh, we want each and every one of you to be able to, to study, to, to ask questions. And when, when faced with a question from a, a friend or a family member, we want you to be able to, to answer it. When, when faced with, hey, look at what this verse says. Jesus is a created being. You can say, well, no, that, that's not what it says. Because the very next verse says, Jesus created all things. So how can he be a created thing, a created being, and the creator of all things? Those are two mutually exclusive. We want you to be able to, to handle God's word and to have a working knowledge of it. Because, again, it, it's of the utmost importance so that you're able to identify error, to identify falsehood, and to build your lives upon truth. And, and, and that's part of the basics of, of Christianity. That's part of the basics of the Christian life, to be in God's word, to start to, to learn it and then apply what you are learning accurately, rather than reading the Old Testament saying, well, I have to now keep everything in the law. That's exhausting. You're never going to be able to do it. Uh, you, you're only going to come to the conclusion, I have no hope. But then again, that's part of the conclusion that you're supposed to come to with the law, right? The threefold purpose of the law, to show us the holy nature of God, to show us our sinful nature, and then to show us that we need a Savior. You're supposed to read the Old Testament and realize, I could never do this. Amen. And that's what Jesus is trying to to point to, even in the fact of showing that circumcision takes precedence over the Sabbath. Because the covenant that God made with Abraham, how was Abraham justified? Not by works of the law, but by faith. Genesis 15, Abraham believed in the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. So we see here all of these errors that that, that Jesus is addressing in this passage, uh, these same errors of misjudging our own sinfulness, misjudging our own circumstances, misjudging the word of God. These three errors prompt Jesus to give the commands of verse 24, right? If we are prone to, to these misjudgments, Jesus commands us to judge righteously. In verse 24, and in verse 24, as he, as he gives these two commands, he, he's setting it up uh, as a stop doing this and start doing this. Uh, stop it. And he says, first of all, you know, do not judge by appearances. And, and the implication of the, the Greek verb tense there is that this is already taking place. Uh, it's already happening, and it's something that they need to cease. Right? They are already judging by appearances, and it needs to stop. And then uh, the next commandment, opposite of that, they're not to judge by appearances. They are to judge with righteous judgment. And, and the implication of, of all that they have been uh, doing uh, is that, they, hey, there, there's a lot of sin happening. To judge uh, wrongly and then to act upon it is, is sinful. You come to the wrong conclusions and build your life on, on falsehood. And so why is Jesus suddenly talking about how we should or should not judge? All right, why is he suddenly getting to, to this? How is this connected with what he was talking about before? Well, the, the implication is that both the, the people and the religious leaders were specifically not judging him rightly. Right? They, they were misjudging him. They were accusing him of breaking the Sabbath. They were accusing him uh, of uh, not obeying God. 
they were minimizing their own sin, uh, and in, in, they were focusing upon the letter of the law in a way that destroyed the spirit of the law. Right? They're just saying, hey, uh, the Sabbath says I can't do any work, so I don't do anything. Well, even if it is meaning to do good for somebody. Uh, and what Jesus is, is demonstrating is, look, in this circumstance, uh, they, they, the hardness of their hearts, their, their sinfulness uh, was ruling their judgment. They were not judging rightly. Now, in, uh, in debates and in uh, public discourse, uh, what often takes place uh, is that the real issues uh, kind of get pushed to the side uh, and uh, a lot of ad hominem attacks are made. And an ad hominem attack is a is a logical term for when you uh, when you're in a debate or in a discussion with somebody. And rather than dealing with the issue, you attack the person. Right. Uh, if you need examples of this, just think back a couple of months ago uh, to the November elections when when the the issues weren't really being discussed. But there were a whole lot of insults flying back and forth about one candidate or the other. Right. Now, if you also need examples of this, just watch any two siblings in a room together uh, with a toy. Uh, and immediately uh, what will happen is there'll be arguments and then it will rapidly decline into uh, not the issue at hand of, you know, who, who's right and who's wrong and who sinned, uh, but the reality of name calling begins and then it just uh, descends uh, from there. Uh, and so, so what we see here is an ad hominem attack uh, that... The, the Jewish leaders were not dealing with the real issue. And if you think back, because Jesus is pointing back to John chapter 5. What was the real big issue of John chapter 5? Jesus healed a man who had been an invalid for 38 years. Think about that. I have to do something with that. Right? That means something about Jesus. Because I can't heal anybody who's been an invalid for 38 years. I can't heal anybody who's been an invalid for six months. I can't heal anybody. The fact that he healed somebody in that way is really big news. But what did the Jewish leaders turn that into? They didn't focus on that. What did they focus upon? Jesus, you're breaking the Sabbath. You're a Sabbath breaker. The, the issue gets sidetracked. They begin to attack him as a Sabbath breaker rather than dealing with the really big truth of who he is. It's profound. But the question still remains. Right? And that's in essence what Jesus is doing here. He, he's wiping their excuse from the debate table. He says, you've been accusing me as a Sabbath breaker. Let me show you why that's not the case at all. Not true. So your argument against me, your attack is completely invalid. Now let's get back to what really matters. Who am I? We all have to answer that. How are we going to respond to him? And that's the biggest application in this passage. Each one of us is commanded to judge righteously, yes, in all things, but most specifically about who Jesus is. We all have to come to a conclusion about that. And each and every one of us should weigh the claims of Christ. Not just, is he a Sabbath breaker, but how did he heal this man? How did he feed 15,000 people? How did he walk on water? How did he rise from the dead? Those are the questions that we need to answer. 
But ultimately, we are also called to go beyond merely trying to understand who Jesus is. What we have to get to, am I willing to follow and obey him? Am I willing to submit to him? Right, that goes back to verses 17 and 18. If I'm not willing to submit my life to God, I'm, I'm never going to accept Christ. I'm never going to follow him. He's never even going to make sense to me. We are called to submit our lives to Christ because he is the son of God. He's the creator who has given us life and breath and everything. He is uh, the one who has uh, shown us our sin and our sinfulness. And we are all sinners. We are all separated from God because uh, of the desires of our heart, the actions uh, of our bodies, the words of our mouth, you, you name it. We are fully sinners. And that separates us from God. And now we are called to trust no longer in ourselves, but to trust in Christ, to look to him as Lord and as Savior, trusting in his life, trusting in his death, his death on the cross when he endured the penalty for our sins. We are all called to no longer trust in ourselves, but look to him in faith, saying, Jesus, I have nothing. I need your grace and your mercy. And we need to approach him like that each and every day. And if you're here this morning, and and that's new, if you're here this morning and you're not familiar with that message, I I would urge you, come speak with me afterwards. I would urge you, speak with the person who, who invited you. I would love to tell you more about all that Jesus has done on your behalf. Because this is the most important matter in all of life, and there's no avoiding it. But what we see here this morning is this command from Christ to judge righteously in these three uh, misjudgments that we are prone to commit. And in discussing teaching and and logic, uh, ad hominem attacks, as I mentioned, are are often uh, categorized as logical fallacies. But there are occasions when an ad hominem attack is valid, uh, when when it deals with someone's hypocrisy when it directly connects with the topic that is being discussed. Uh, And so what's interesting is that the Jewish leaders brought an attack against Christ that was completely false, but Jesus brings an attack against them, an accusation that is completely true. You're misjudging God's word. You're not judging the Sabbath rightly. You're not judging him rightly. And so there is one sense in which Jesus is acting as a prosecuting attorney against the Jewish leaders here. And if we judge him unrighteously, Jesus will prosecute us. There's the urgency to this situation. If we judge him unrighteously, we are in trouble with him. He will be the prosecuting attorney. If we judge him rightly, he's our defense attorney. 1 John 2, verse 1 says... My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. That's beautiful. If, If we place our faith and our trust in Christ, he is our advocate. He is our defense attorney. He's not charging us. He's defending us with his own body, with his own blood, before the judge. Therein lies the urgency of this decision. 
What are we going to do with Jesus? How will we respond to who he is? Will he be uh, prosecuting us or will he be defending us? And my hope, my prayer, uh, is that we look at all the claims of Christ. Uh, we, We weigh them and we look to him in faith. And that he will be our advocate, our defense attorney, our Lord and our Savior. Amen.